0: Hello, you guys, welcome today to the podcast. I am excited to welcome our guest today. Jill, will you tell us your story, who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today?
1: Sure. Well, thank you, Whitney, for having me on the show first. And my name is Jill Castle. I am a pediatric dietitian, which basically means I'm a trained registered dietitian, but I specialize in pediatric nutrition for children birth through 18 years of age. And I've been in the field of nutrition since 1990. So I've been around for a while. And I have four of my own children who are almost all grown and flown at this point. And I spend a lot of my time working one-on-one with families and as well as I have a podcast myself and a blog, both of which are called The Nourished Child. And I do quite a lot of speaking and training and some book writing and lots of other fun stuff but i got into Fine. yeah i got in i got into pediatric nutrition i i actually was pre med in college and failed no, i didn't fail it but i didn't do well enough in organic chemistry and that uh, sort of organic chemistry <laughs> <laughs> That's i <the> really worst. <laughs> i really think you have like a brain for that or not and what's really funny is i still get lost even with mapquest and gps mapping my brain just does not I don't know. It doesn't follow layout like that. But anyways, so I I changed course. I knew I still wanted to do science because I loved science. I took a nutrition 101 course with about 300 other students, and I aced it, and I loved it, and that sort of started me on my path. I did my internship at Mass General Hospital in Boston and did a pediatric rotation for two weeks and just had that moment where it was like, I love kids. I'd always been a babysitter, spent a lot of time with young children. But I also was challenged by the fact that there were kids with cardiovascular surgery, post-op, there were trauma victims, there were kids with diabetes, kids with cystic fibrosis. So they were having all these medical, complicated medical conditions, just like adults. But At the same time, we still had to like help them grow and develop and learn about food and have good experiences and good relationships amongst their family members around the table and with food itself. And so I found pediatric nutrition to be extremely challenging and very rewarding. And so that sort of started my
0: my path, my career path, if you will. Yeah, that's cool. Well, hey, listen, there are a number of days that I'm like, <laughs> I could have done a lot of other things other than be a doctor. It would have been like, same ending, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's cool. I mean, honestly, I feel like sometimes life finds us where we're meant to be, right? Yeah, I agree.
1: I agree. And, you know, and then I had, I think you probably know this story a little bit, but I, I had my first daughter- After I had been seven years in practice as a pediatric dietitian, I'd worked at Mass General on the pediatric floors. Then I transferred over to Children's Hospital and worked as a nutrition support dietitian. And so I really was like, I have this whole feeding and nutrition thing down pat when I have my own kids. It's going to be the best thing. It's going to be so easy. And I had my first child and it was not easy. She was a difficult feeder. She wasn't very interested in hanging out in the high chair and eating and enjoying food. It was more of a, I'm in, let, get me out. I've got other things. I'm busy. I don't care about eating. And so she, you know, I had an experience with her in her first 18 months whereby at at a year she was underweight. She had really fallen off her growth chart. And at 18 months, she had anemia. And so that really kind of threw my whole. I've been trained as a pediatric dietitian, security blanket out the window. And mm-hmm. I had to really figure out that, you know, this traditional training of it's all about the food and getting the nutrients into your body as a sign of health. I, I really quickly realized that it was much more than just a healthy diet, it was a healthy relationship with food, a healthy interaction around food, and understanding you know, where my daughter was, her temperament, but also where she was developmentally. And that sort of, you know, set me on my different course within my field and really developing sort of my own, what I call trifecta approach to feeding and nourishing children, which is understanding what to feed them, how to do it, and why they behave the way they do.
0: Yeah, a couple things there. I mean, first of all, that just resonates so much with me. I feel like whatever you do that you're an expert at, inevitably, that's what your child struggles with. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's, That's true. That's true in my life, too. And also, I think the difference in your approach from a lot of the books and the information out there is really that how you feed, making sure that with the education, that the how you feed is just as important to parents as what they feed. Can you talk about that? What that means for you? Unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I oftentimes will say to parents, you know, how you interact with your child, your feeding styles, your daily strategies or tactics that you use to get your child to eat or even to not eat, those are as powerful as the food you put on the plate. So for example, if you find yourself you know, chasing your toddler around, reminding her to take a sip of her milk or to come to the table and eat. And when she gets at the table, you're you're asking her to take another bite. You're pressuring her to try and to eat more. That approach is, for many toddlers, very off-putting and flies in the face of exactly what you're trying to get them to do, eat more. It oftentimes has that opposite effect and turns them off from food and oftentimes can make them eat less well. And so that's what I mean by you can put the most healthy food on the plate, the quote unquote, cleanest items you can put together on a plate. But if your child isn't interacting with food or even eating it, what does it really matter? What matters is that your child is excited to come to the table, enjoys the food that's out there enjoys the interaction around food and is encouraged to explore without pressure to eat. And I think that that is that's something that's really lost today. I think we get really caught up in making sure our kids get all the nutrients and all the food groups and the healthiest, cleanest foods we can get, less processed, sugar-free. All this stuff. We focus on one tree, the diet, sure. and we fail to see the forest, which is growing a child who appreciates and enjoys food and eating and knows how to regulate their intake and how to interact
0: and navigate food. Yeah. And your philosophy is that this starts as, at the earliest stages. I mean, right mm-hmm. when you get that kiddo in the high chair, what are some of the things that really matter when babies are starting solid foods?
1: Yeah. So I think I think you know feeding your baby in that first day, right after they're born, where you're holding that baby close to you, whether you're nursing or you're bottle feeding, you have the baby in your arms, you're looking at the baby, you're very responsive. And so that's really the first way that we connect with our children is through responsive feeding. And a great model is, you know, breastfeeding. You can't overfeed a be- breastfed baby. They pull off when they're done and they move on. And I th- I think that what we need to be teaching parents and encouraging them is in those very early days and throughout that first and second year of life is to really focus on being responsive. And responsive basically means being able to recognize your child's hunger cues, but also their fullness cues and not pushing beyond fullness and being sure that you're responding
0: when they show hunger. Yes. Such a more holistic approach, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking about it from how will this impact my child when they're older? Because we don't want our kids to be learning that when they're not hungry that they should be eating because right. later on when they're older, then that will make them overeat, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. We, yeah. Can, we we actually train children to overeat. And it's those little it's after responsive feeding, you know, we have the whole division of responsibility and then we move into the love with limits or diplomatic feeding style and practices. And so there's this continuum of feeding, but it really starts with responsive feeding in the beginning and then understanding your child and helping them grow and develop along. If you don't have, if you're not responsive in the beginning, if you don't honor your child's fullness and stop feeding, then essentially you're pushing past fullness and you are teaching your child to keep eating when they're not hungry. And that translates into toddlerhood when, when you might be worried that your child isn't eating a healthy enough variety of foods or enough foods in, in total. And so then you encourage and push and bribe your child to eat, or you sneak foods into other foods, all in this effort to get your child to eat more or eat, or eat healthier. But in doing that, we're potentially teaching our children to ignore how they feel internally And to rely on external cues to know how much to eat. So I'm going to wait till mom tells me to stop eating. And that's what's going to become an internal cue for me to know when to stop eating, as opposed to listening to those hunger and appetite cues on the
0: inside. Got it. And then how about the importance of the family table? Does it matter where kids eat? Does it matter that Mm -hmm. they're sitting? Does grazing matter? because i get a lot of patients that say my kid's a great eater but they graze all day long and i'm thinking ooh <laughs> yeah
1: i'm a huge fan of an eating schedule so i'm a big fan of of you know times for for meals and times for snacks i'm a big fan of a regular place to eat so that might be the kitchen table it might be the kitchen counter it might be on a picnic blanket in the middle of the living room if you're a family that can't afford to have a table but a regular place where you gather to eat because of the structure and the predictability that kids do so well with when they have that in their lives. And not only that, that structure and predictability helps children self-regulate. So if you eat a meal, if you eat breakfast and then two and a half to three hours later, your toddler has a snack, your toddler's body starts to adapt to that. I'm full. Now, my stomach's empty, so my hunger is building. Oh, it's time to have a snack. Now I'm full again. Now I'm going to wait two and a half to three hours until those hormones and those hunger cues kick in, and then it's time to have lunch. It's so you get your child on a rhythm, a predictable rhythm, which reinforces appetite regulation.
0: Yeah. And it feels like if they're on that rhythm, and they have the schedule and the predictability, and that part of it. Then that's why you could be more flexible mm-hmm. on what they're choosing because mm-hmm. you have set up the structure, and then they can make their choices within that structure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which leads me to feeding style. So Jill's book, which she co-authored, "Fearless Feeding," is like the nutrition bible in my mind. <laughs> I yeah, use it with I all can. my patients. Yeah, it's so good, and it's. Amazing for providers, I think, to read, to have a thorough understanding, but also for parents. I recommend it to almost all of my families when we hit kind of the toddler age, Mm -hmm. but it can be useful for that too. But one of the biggest things I think in it is this discussion you do about feeding style. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about that? Why it's so important?
1: Yeah. So feeding styles are really important. And I invite all your listeners to sort of do a self-reflection after they hear about this because it definitely influences how we as parents feed our own children. So your feeding style comes very naturally. It tends to come from the way you were raised and it's closely related to a parenting style. There's four sort of feeding styles in the literature. Controlling feeding style is one. And that's where the attitude is more parent centered. I'm in charge. I'm the parent. You do what I tell you to do. If I if you, if you need to eat everything on your plate, you're going to eat everything on your plate before you leave the table, for example. Another feeding style is the permissive feeding style or with a more modern term for it is indulgent feeding style. And that's the parent who's more inclined to say yes to food requests. It's a child-centered feeding style. So the child is sort of leading the food choices and what's happening with the timing of eating. It's more of a reactive feeding style in that the parent is reacting to the child. The child says, I'm hungry. Okay, let's find something to eat. It might, even if that child has just eaten 30 minutes earlier. And then the third is neglectful. I hate that word, but it's it's more of a uninvolved is the more modern ter- terminology for it, an uninvolved feeding style whereby food and eating and schedules aren't very important to the parent so they don't really happen. And what can happen with that is a child is left feeling unsure of when they're going to get to eat or whether they're going to get the foods that they enjoy eating. And that can make a child really focused on food, constantly questioning, worried about food, whether they're going to get to eat. And then the last feeding style is the diplomatic feeding style. And that's the one that we that is the gold standard. We should all be striving to become diplomatic feeders. And that is where the parent is in charge of what's being fed, when it happens, and where it happens. And the child's really in charge of whether they're going to eat what's put in front of them and how much they're going to eat. This parent uses structure, is not afraid to say no, has reasonable boundaries in place around food and eating, and, but also allows a child to grow in their autonomy around food, allows that child to have a say in you know, what's on the menu, but not the total say. They, they enjoy, the parent enjoys having input from the child, but the parent is still in charge. So how this plays out, I mean, we all have a feeding style. We all grew up with one and we tend to use the feeding style that we grew up with with our own children. Or if we grew up with a feeding style that was very counterproductive for us, we may go in an opposite direction. So for example, if you were made to sit at the table and eat your green beans until nine o'clock every night, and then those green beans were served for breakfast, you might have a very negative feeling about green beans, let alone, you know, eating dinner at the table. And so, for your own children, you might say, I'm not going to do that to my kids. I am going to be way more relaxed about food, and I'm not going to make them eat anything. In fact, I'm just, you know, and as a result, what can happen is that instead of being structured and predictable, you're more lax, and that has its own pitfalls.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like so many things when we go yeah. the opposite way of how we were raised and exactly. we don't like the way it was. <laughs> totally. So, okay, so in a perfect scenario, how would a meal look, let's say with like toddlers, if you were sitting like a 3-year-old to 5-year-old, if you were sitting at a family meal and you know that your kid is kind of more on the picky side, what what would it look like at a family meal in your ideal world? Yeah, so
1: that toddler would be at the family table in a chair that supports them, but right up at the table, that child would have I, I mean I personally like to see toddlers participating in family style meals where foods at the center of the table and the parents are helping the child make decisions about what goes on the plate and how much, but really being really no, really allowing the child to make decisions about what goes on the plate and how much and then just being at that table in a very positive sort of attitude and realm, like that environment of the table should be fun and adventurous and allowing that toddler to be curious to try things, but also respecting that that child may not want to eat things or may not want to eat everything. And so being respectful of that too. That being said, You know, those meals and snacks are happening for a toddler every two and a half to three hours. So if you have your child at this family table, you've passed around the food and you've gone up to your toddler with a bowl of mashed potatoes and said, tell me how much you would you like some mashed potatoes? How much Mm -hmm. would you like on your plate? And we go to the next person and and here comes the chicken. Would you like a slice of chicken? How much would you like me to put on your plate, or even that older toddler can take the fork and put things on his own plate after you've constructed that whole meal and you know I know there are listeners out there that are going to say, "Well, what if my toddler doesn't take anything off mm-hmm. of you know the dinner the the meal table? I encourage parents to put a food something of every food group on the table, so a vegetable, a fruit some sort of a grain, be it pasta or rice, a protein source, a dairy source, or a non-dairy if you're if you're not doing dairy, but a, a balanced meal. And make sure that at least one or two of those items are something that you know your child will eat. And for a lot of kids, it might be a glass of milk and some fruit so that the meal itself isn't a total miss, that there's at least something there, bread and butter, something on that table that child can eat. After the meal is over, the meal is over and the kitchen is closed. And we wait until the next eating session, which could be breakfast the next morning or for a young toddler, I prefer them to have a small snack before they go to bed. And it might be just a cup of milk as they read before they do their bedtime routine and go to bed. But we we create that gap. We create the closure behind the meal and we create the gap between the next eating session. And we kind of really try to get our children to fall in line with that eating pattern because, A, again, as I mentioned, it helps support their appetite regulation, but it also keeps the parent in charge of the entire feeding routine.
0: So, a couple questions, and I know people are going to want to. No. So after you close the meal and the kitchen is closed and you call scene, then the next meal, it's not like you save that food for them if they're hungry in between. Mm -hmm. It's like you start out with new, fresh other food for them to try. Correct? Yes. Yep.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So this isn't like a punishment deal. Like you didn't eat that. Then that means, well, well, we're going to save it for you. My dad said that his mom (laughs) (laughs) fed him. She kept okra, in the refrigerator for him for six meals straight until he oh. finished it poor oh. thing yeah. so we don't want to do that to our kids no. just if they don't want that food at that meal then okay it's a fresh start new chance at the next meal but just don't pull out like the you know fish crackers right in between right right exactly like no short order chefing no so if Exactly.
1: And I think the other, the other thing to remember here is that, you know, our job as parents, partic- particularly in these very young years, are to expose our kids to as many different foods as we can. And so repeating, while it's practical to do, is not always desirable when you think about we're on a food journey and, you know, the food preference store sort of closes around age five. 90% of our food preferences are are formed by around age five. And so we're on a timeline in those toddler years. And the goal is to get a very wide variety, get our children exposed to a wide variety wide variety of food. It doesn't mean they're going to like a wide variety of food, but our job is to make sure we're exposing them to a large variety. So when we serve okra six times in a row, or we give peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day for lunch, or waffles for breakfast every day, we're not doing that job.
0: Yeah, they don't get the exposure to all the different types of foods. Exactly. Hi, Mama. Guess what? Our book, The New Baby Blueprint, is out in the world. We're so excited because we know it's going to help change the new motherhood experience. The Bump said, they say motherhood doesn't come with a manual, but the new baby blueprint comes pretty close. You can find it wherever books are sold or check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash book. One really cool idea I thought that you had in your book was about having different meals that were like mommy's choice meal. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be like daddy's choice. And and then a couple nights a week having like family favorite Mm -hmm. type of nights. So that would be like on one night, Mom's the one who picks the menu. I mean, you're always picking the menu, but like you're picking like you're saying even like oh this is mommy's favorite meal. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have like curry and you know, I don't know, sausages or whatever. And then the next night could be dad's, and then it could be the kids on the third night so that there's some variety that way, but exactly. that people see it as like preferences, right?
1: Yeah. And and it's also when it's a kids' night, it's building that autonomy. It's saying I trust you to make a choice. And I'm excited to see what kind of meal you're going to put together. Here are the parameters. We have to pick a vegetable. We have to pick a grain. We have to pick a protein source. But you give them that framework and allow them to come up with ideas and actually execute it. It's extremely empowering for a child. And it also just really supports their autonomy
0: development. In the book, too, you talk a ton about development. I mean, that's the Mm -hmm. third part of the education that you talk about, about Mm -hmm. parents really understanding, like for example, when a toddler is a toddler, their development is very different than a baby or a six-year-old. What do parents really need to know about child development and temperament in the toddler years? Because I think your information about eating, I mean, that extends to everything else about parenting in the toddler years too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what are like the key things parents should know about what's going on inside a toddler's brain that influences their food choices and how they approach food?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that toddler is struggling for independence. They're breaking away. They want to do things themselves. That's why you hear no. You hear them say, I do it. They want have some control and it is always almost always shows up in feeding and potty training as you probably yes. well know <laughs> they they want to do it themselves and so we need to find ways as parents to support that so self Feeding is a big thing, and I see a lot of parents who are reluctant to let their children self-feed. They're reluctant to have the mess, but it is so developmentally important to have a toddler be able to use a spoon, know how to cut with a plastic knife, spread butter or peanut butter on bread, dip. I mean, all these little basic skills are independence and autonomy building for a toddler. Absolutely. Yeah, they're separating. They want that independence. And they are also struggling with self-control. They don't. They can't always contain themselves and pull themselves together. That's why they need us as parents to help them. When they have a meltdown, it's not really a time to punish a child. It's a time to help them gather themselves back together because they're struggling in the toddler years with that self-control. They don't quite know how to control themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing to think about too is just intergenerationally. We lived with my parents for a while as we were really tackling a bunch of medical school student loans. And while we're living there, you know, so we'd have these family meals with my mom and dad. And my parents had me when. They were like 37 or something like that. And so at this point, it's been a while since they've watched a toddler try to eat at a dinner Mm -hmm, table. mm -hmm. And my littlest would be, she's three, and she would be sitting there like trying to butter bread. And my mom would reach in understandably to help her with it or like to make sure that she didn't like break the Mm -hmm. like plates or something like that, you know? And so we finally had to have a discussion about like, what do we need to do at this dinner table to make it so that the cups aren't going to all spill? We're not worried about China. Their knives are safe for our kids. There's plastic so that if something fell, that would be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we set up the environment so that it can be successful for them to have a learning experience? Yeah. Too. Yeah. So, and I, so I think even if you're not living with grandparents, I mean, that's an important thing, even at your own. Home.
1: yeah yeah i mean i think what i see and you probably see this too is you know in infancy the constant wiping of the face and i think parents forget or don't know that you know food on the face means that your child is smelling that food there's texture there's sensation on the skin the fingers you know making a mess with food is a sensory building Process and it's a good thing for kids to get messy with food. In the toddler years, like, like you were saying, pouring your own milk. Why, you know, if you go to preschool, they're serving themselves. They're pouring their own milk or water into their own cups. It's very much driven towards helping them build independence. And we need to be consistent with that in the home as well. And if you take it into the childhood years, it's they need to start experimenting in the kitchen, having some freedom to bake or cook or, or, or create things in the kitchen. Again, it's autonomy building. It helps them develop their independence and self-worth and self-esteem when they can learn these skills and, and, and figure out how to be good at things.
0: Yeah, is there is there science behind the whole like having a garden for kids to for them to be helping out? Mm-hmm. I know there's science around people when they contribute to the making of food, that mm-hmm. then they're more likely to be enjoying those foods. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Yes. Absolutely. I don't know about the science around the gardening. You know who would know is Connie Evers,
0: (laughs) (laughs) a colleague of mine, mutual friend. Yeah, I'll ask her about that because I I encourage my patients all the time. In the I mean, we I live in Portland. It's rainy here, but in the summertime to have a garden with your kids, if nothing else is going to get them outside and doing something other than watching TV, right? And then in the wintertime, to you don't have to buy a fancy box that comes to your house and has recipes on it. You can look up some kids' recipes online or find some that have pictures and help your kids learn to be, once they're a little bit older, be independent or work along with you mm-hmm. to make simple recipes.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I look back on my youngest son who now, you know, is 18 and he can cook for himself. That's the end goal. That's the other thing I remind parents of. Remember, we're on this journey. It's 18 years. The end goal is to release a child into the world who can take care of themselves. Know how to regulate their their food intake, know how to cook for themselves, know how to buy food, how to balance all foods. And so that's a process. That's eight, we get 18 years to get to that point. So there's no rush. <laughs> there's <laughs> there's no rush and it's not gonna happen tomorrow. But it's, you know, this journey, we're taking our children on a journey. And as you asked a little earlier, you know, how to how what do parents need to know about development oh, every stage is connected so we get it right in the in the infant stage and then everything changes the motivations of a child change their developmental milestones change what they're driven to do changes so we need to be ready for that and then once we get that down pat we're into a new stage we're into the school age years where the the drivers are different and so i think it really helps parents to have a good handle on what to expect because things do change. Nothing ever stays the same during childhood, particularly with development and eating and feeding
0: and nutrition. It changes constantly. For sure. You know, I I want to stop for a second on that because I do think that part of this, and I would be guilty of this too if it wasn't that I was an expert in pediatrics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so much of this, I think, is about, it's not that like, Exciting or like sexy to read about child development. And it's less exciting than figuring out, like, what's the next class for them to go to? What little summer camp should I get them involved in? What's the cute clothes to buy? Like, da da da. But really, like, That is one of the most important things you can do for your relationship with your child Mm -hmm. and your experience as a parent is to slow down and take the time to really understand what's going on Mm -hmm. inside your child's brain at every single stage. You don't have to be the expert, but you want a solid understanding of the developmental stage they're in.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think just to add on to that, understanding your child's temperament because you can be a pro at all the developmental stuff, but you still need to know your child and every child is different. You've got kids mm-hmm. that are, you know, part of part of the struggle with my first child was that she's got a very strong temperament. She she is a you say do this, she says no. And she's been that way her whole life and it's not a bad thing. I call her a spirited child. She has her own ideas, her own way of doing things and as her mother, I really had to get on top of that. I really had to study what her temperament meant for her and for me parenting her because it changed. It it changed it changed my thinking about parenting. I couldn't parent her in a controlling, do as I say manner. It was never going to work with her temperament. So that's the other thing. I think that when we understand our children's temperament, it gives us that insight into knowing how they're going to eat. And one of the dangerous things about children and their temperaments is some some children are 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 resistant and so if you have that picky eater with a temperament that's more resistant, you know, forcing that child to eat or controlling that child to make them eat or manipulating situations to get them to eat is going to erode trust and it's going to backfire because that temperament won't put up with that approach. Over time, it will reveal itself that way. And on the other side is if you have a child whose temperament is really easygoing and relaxed and will do whatever you want them to do, that's dangerous too, because if you push that child to eat more or you reward that child with dessert, that child is gonna learn to overeat. That child's going to learn to like foods that may not be the healthiest foods for them. So you have to be you know, understanding your child's temperament and reflecting that in the decisions that you make around food and parenting around food is an important piece too.
0: Yeah. Let's dig into that for a second because I think a lot of parents will do the whole like one bite thing. Mm -hmm. Like you have to finish this one bite before you can get up from the table or to take it further, they'll like beg their kids, bribe their kids with like a dessert food to eat a vegetable, punish their kids for not eating well. And they don't mean to, it just is like, they feel really desperate in that moment. Mm -hmm. So what are your what are your philosophies or guidelines on that on like the one bite thing or on having it be like something as a reward? It sounds like it's a no go. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say in most cases
1: it can be a no, it's a it's a no go. I mean, if you look at the research on bribing children with dessert, it changes their food preferences. It makes them like desserts more than than the bribe that you're trying to create and it makes them like dessert more than they're going to like vegetables over time. I think when, you know, the one bite rule, you know, for some families it works. And for some children who are compliant and easygoing, it can work. I think the most important thing is as a parent, step back and understand what your motivations and intentions are by using the one bite rule and then figure out, or think about what, what is your child's perception on this and how is it affecting her? Is it a drag every time your child comes to the table because they know they have to take a bite of something? Or is your child happily adventurous and saying, sure, I'll taste it because I know mom is going to let me off the hook if I say I don't like it. It really, you know, so it, 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 that one is a little less clear the research is less clear on it as well. I th- and I think it's because it really has a lot to do with the child's temperament and their perception of the situation. And probably the way you're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. It's
0: different to say, hey, you want to try a bite of this? Just right. try a little bite and see how you like it. Versus like, you must try a bite of this or yeah. you will not get it from this table. Right, <laughs> right. Well, you have a
1: one bite rule. You have to do this. You know, I, I right. think you're right. The way it's showcased has a lot to do with it.
0: Yeah, Okay. So how about if someone is worried about their kids' weight? Because of course, obesity is a huge problem. And I think that if they're starting from scratch and starting young with all of these really healthy ways to approach how they're feeding their kids, hopefully they won't get into these problems anyway, but we know there are some kids who are going to have difficulties with their weight. What about when parents try to restrict or really tightly limit certain foods? What, Mm -hmm. What can happen to kids when they do that? Well,
1: it's a negative feeding practice. It's called restriction or rest- restrictive feeding and it's it's any time where you are, you know, limiting second portions, eliminating all sweets and candy and soda from the house. Altering food, so only sugar-free, only non-fat, any kind of manipulation of that ilk can be considered by a child restriction. What we know from the outcomes of that kind of feeding, it leads children to be a little bit more food-focused, a little more reactionary to those foods that are being restricted so that when they're available, they tend to overeat them. They may food seek or seek those foods out. They may hide and sneak and steal those foods. So it really can create quite a lot of problem behavior in a child when they are feeling or experiencing food restriction, particularly around sweets. So, you know, it's good healthy feeding practices. Again, a good healthy, well-balanced diet that includes all foods. I teach my families the 90-10 rule where 10% of What a child eats in a given day on average can be from, you know, sweets and treats. There is room in the diet for children if the lion's share of what they eat is real wholesome, good for them growing foods from all those food groups we talked about before. So total restriction almost never works. I've never seen it work. And in children who are overweight, I've seen it really backfire and create more weight problems, more weight gain. So restriction is tricky. And in children, that's going to be, I think, my next subject to tackle in a book form is, is how to work with children who are carrying extra weight and how to recognize you know, when it's problematic weight and if there are problematic eating behaviors and helping families reverse those. But there's nothing dramatically different you know, when you're working with a child that is carrying or parenting a child that's carrying extra weight, you still want them to eat good food. They've got to eat, right? You still want them on a schedule. You still want to cover their appetite. You still want to teach them hunger and fullness. You still want to make sure they're active, that they're getting enough sleep, that they are not spending too much time on electronics. You know, there's just good, wholesome lifestyle, food, feeding, things that you can do with children, where many times in my experience, if I'm presented with a child, and I've worked with a lot of children who carry extra weight, many times, that whole system of solid, healthy lifestyle around all those different categories has failed in some areas. And we need to help those families build those areas back up again, and get those really rock solid. I mean, the goal, again, is to have children be able to self-regulate know how to navigate food, take care of their bodies and you know helping parents be able to parent around those getting back really solid in their parenting around food can help a lot. We do know that if you are worried about your child's weight, it will likely change your feeding approach. There's a lot of research that tells us when a child's overweight, mothers in particular tend to worry more, tend to adopt restriction or restrictive feeding practices because they believe it's a way to help their child. And I think that there's, that's where we can educate a lot. Restriction, dieting, it just creates a scarcity mindset. And in a child who's not got the self-control that adults do, whereby we can say, oh, I'm not going to overindulge in this today. I'm not going to have this. We have better sense of control over our, our will. Although you could, argue that we don't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But children are less good at that. They're more impulsive. When when they're hungry, they're they're driven to eat. When they are around a food that they never ever get, but they remember that they like it a lot, they're going to be inclined to overeat that food. And so, children don't have the self-control. They're very pure in their, their actions. And so, They really need strong parenting and supportive parenting around this. And that doesn't translate to put them on a diet, you know, wipe out every fun food in their life. It doesn't, that doesn't work either. So it's a delicate, it's a tough, it's a tough situation for a lot of parents and
0: their children. Yeah, absolutely. And remember that there are pediatric dietitians who are waiting in the wings to help you. Mm -hmm. So this is not something you have to do alone. Your pediatrician, your pediatric dietitian can help if you're concerned about picky eating, about just eating philosophy in general, about overweight or obesity, all of those things are waiting to help you. I want to also just say quickly, right, let's... Keep it real, mamas, that also the way that we eat and how we model healthy eating for our kids and if we're restrictive around food for our kids, that matters. Our kids watch us. Mm -hmm. They see how we talk about our bodies and about the foods we eat and about what what diet we're on or whatnot. So we also have to figure out for ourselves kind of where we are on that and get help if we need it too, if we are really struggling with the how we're eating just as much as the what we're eating. So it's just an encouragement on that.
1: Yeah. 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 And I I truly believe that learning how to feed your child is great insight on how to feed yourself.
0: Yes. Well, Jill, thank you so much for being here. Will you tell listeners where they can find you on the web or on social?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank well, thank you so much for having me. Everything I do is under my website, Jillcastle.com. And I would invite your listeners to come on over to the Nourish Child podcast and take a listen there. I I cover lots of nutrition and feeding topics there. And yeah, I have nutrition classes and lots of books and free articles on my website, jillcastle.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, hey, hey. If you loved this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast so you're automatically notified every time we have powerful information, inspiration, and amazing guests to share with you. We would also be so honored if you shared the Modern Mommy Doc podcast with your friends by snapping a screenshot of this episode and posting it with hashtag Modern Mommy Doc so we can spread the word and help more mamas win at parenting without losing themselves. Thanks for being part of our community.